to the outtakes, the official podcast of National Student Pride. Here I'm joined with Juno Dawson, a best-selling writer. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes with some amazing queer people doing some amazing things both inside and out. Amazing queer things. Amazing, amazing queer, queer things. It's just queer, 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 queer. So, Juno, um, I do want to get into a lot of your like activism and writing, but I think I read online that you're a big fan of the Spice Girls. Yes. Absolutely. I'm a big fan as well, so I guess the first question is, what is your favourite Spice Girl, and both then and now, and has it changed? Yes, that's, that's exactly answer. the right way to ask that question. Yeah, because there's two different answers for me. Yeah, so it was always Posh Spice, right from Midnight Miss Suki, throughout. And I still don't know, I still love Victoria Beckham, I am wearing Victoria Beckham eyeliner as we speak, product placement. But now, I think if... Knowing, knowing what I'm now in and sort of working in the industry that I work in, I've been in closest proximity with Mel C. Mm. And Mel C is such a phenomenal ally mm. to all of the LGBTQIA community. Her collaboration with Simply Pink, I think it's been an education for her and I think she would admit that. And I think now, now that I'm a bit older and now that I've worked in sort of film and TV for a while, I think Mel, Mel C is the one I want to go really? for a drink with. Really? Yeah. So you were like an OG posh spice? Always. Was it because of like just the audacity to go on stage and just sort of point with like? Yeah, like, I, I like an underdog, yeah. and I've always liked an underdog. And Victoria was the odd one out yeah. in that the others had a very similar energy, and then Victoria just had a and, dark, like and, but also very dark humour. Yeah, so she, she is sharp. So she is funny. so yeah. funny. Every interview that she has with David, you, she is carrying it. Mm. She is. She does not miss me. She's so cool. I think she's very mm. smart, and so I've still got a lot of time. I'm scared. I've never met Victoria Beckham, mm. and I, I'm and I'm very mindful because they do say you know be careful, don't be heroes. But um, so I, I think I probably would still get on with Victoria. It's just that you know Mousy is so immersed mm. in the queer scene now that like she's mm. the one that I feel like we we just have the most to talk about. So. Well, she's also the most like punk one as well. She always got like painted with the brush of the le- like the mm. lesbian because she was like sporty tomboy mm. like. But I, I think I've always been like a, uh, like a ginger spice. Ginger I, I, lo- I, I don't know, I'm, it's probably a very basic sort of go-to, but I just thought she was so fiery and cool. Well, as well, I think, I think what's really, really evident is they were not the Spice Girls without Jerry. No, she was the branding machine behind yeah. it in a way. Like, it was so crazy. She got it. She gets pop. She, she gets yeah. it. She gets it. Was the Spice Girls, did that impact you as like a queer person growing up? Oh, 100%. Because it essentially, for me, involved, I was sort of outing myself. Mm. Because the Spice Girls started when I was 14. At the time, it was well, well before my transition. So it was, it was a case of, by admitting and being an open, I'm, I'm out as a Spice Girl fan. By being out as a Spice Girl fan, that wasn't normal for a little while. Right. At the time, I, did, I didn't know who or what I was, and I wasn't going to figure that out for a long time. Although, weirdly, what I knew is that I wanted to be a Spice Girl. Yeah. But then the bit that I kind of got lost in the process was, no, you just want to be a girl. Yeah. Like, you can figure this out, kind of, like, think it through. Um, and maybe I should have thought it through a bit more, but um, I it, essentially being a Spice Girl fan meant outing myself, and, and I don't regret it. So, yeah, it was when I was... I wasn't prepared to hide my love for the Spice Girls, basically. I guess also, like, we are talking about the Spice Girls a lot, but I think as queer people, we do tend to find, like, people, whether it's pop stars, celebrities, that we can identify with, like, we use pop culture so much as, like, as like, almost like a, a way to navigate our queerness, and, like, if you look at the Spice Girls, all of them represent a different type of femininity that I think any girl or boy out there can identify with, so I think it's really interesting that that helped you almost find your, like, 
woman in it in a way. Like, is that is that been working around? Like, like I've said that before, and I think people always think I'm kidding. Yeah. But I think I think it goes deeper than that as well. In that actually, they they were five working class women. Yeah. And how many in the in the mainstream media in the nineties? How many working class women did we see on television? And especially when I was a little bit older, and Jerry's first book came out after she'd left the Spice Girls, and it really documents kind of the story of a working class girl who just knew there was something special yeah. inside of her. I mean, how queer is that? Yeah. Like, it's so queer like, without being queer. Yeah. Is that story of, like, the innate, like, otherness, but yeah. knowing that that otherness is, like, got a twinkle of, like... And it's got, like, yeah. a special twinkle to it. It's I saw Adele as well when she did James Carden's Carpool Karaoke. He asked her about her love of the Spice Girls, and she said they were five girls who got out. Yeah. And I think that's something that queer people can really relate to, because we shouldn't need to escape our childhoods. But I think we do need to escape it because we've been given a narrative that's not for us. So maybe it's not a childhood that we're escaping, it's the narrative we've been given that we're escaping, that mm-hmm. you know, every child still, you know, it's the way it goes, it's the way our world is set up. You, when a baby is born, you assume it's cisgender and you assume it's gonna be heterosexual, yeah. unless you're told otherwise. The default is still straight, mm-hmm. the default is still cis. And so when, when Adele sort of talked about, I didn't know who they were and I didn't know what I wanted to get out of, but I knew I needed to get out. And that really spoke to me because I knew I, knew I was meant for something different. I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew I was not meant to lead the same kind of life as my parents. Mm. I knew that wasn't for me. I think also as queer people, we often use, whether it's going to university and that sort of motivation to get good grades because that's almost like your golden ticket to get out of that situation or whether it's just being successful in your career, like mm-hmm. you, there is always sort of a motivational force of being queer, of I need to find a way to remove myself from this. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part anyway, I'm sure there are stories out there where like people have been more of accepting, but I think even in them cases, there is that need to get out and find yourself on another level. Yeah, but, and it was for me, it was university. I, I and you, you hit the nail on the head, I knew that I was only getting out of Bingley, West Yorkshire if I got a full complement of A-levels. I didn't know any other way out. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm full of respect. I've just done the panel event with, with Belle Priestley. And, you know, she did, she left school at 16 and basically moved, she just brought herself to London at 18 and has built a life for herself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done that. I was much too timid. Mm-hmm. Like, I needed the structure of university. And also, I knew, I knew this was a slightly different time as well. We were, we'd been told all through the 90s that the only way you're going to make anything of yourself is to go to university. I don't know if that's true now. I think I've seen other people be very successful without needing university. But for me, it was just the logical route mm. to my destination. Mm. And I'm so, I'm so glad I did it. You know, I'm, I was able to completely reinvent myself at university. You know, the, all the bullying and the shame that had hovered over me at high school didn't follow me to Wales. I went to university in Bangor. And I could completely reinvent myself. And I, and I did it. You know, I realised I was in a place where queerness was cool because it wasn't—it wasn't a very diverse university. There was an LGBT society, but you know, it wasn't massively. There wasn't a lot of it. It was a very small group. But I was all of a sudden I was like the life and soul of the party. I was, and I realised well, nobody's going to know otherwise. You know, no, nobody knows that you were a big loser at school. So it was kind of a total reinvention. Oh, that's amazing. What did you study? I did psychology which a lot of people do. But I did that because I genuinely wasn't 
quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. And getting a Bachelor of Science with, with a special science felt like, well, this covers a lot of bases. Yeah. And it was fascinating. And, and actually, I think, I think it's absolutely the right thing for me to do. I think, um, you know, <laughs> this, this always comes out at some point, but, you know, I dropped English the second I could. I hated GCS English so much. It bored the shit out of me. And I was sick before you. Well, I was also shit at well, maths. Numbers. Yeah, gross. Very straight culture. But numbers very, very straight. Numbers are straight. And so I dropped English because I was bored. I was good at it, but I was bored. I hated every single book. And I looked at the reading list for A Level English and I was like, yep, that shit as well. Although actually, all my friends did English and it was slightly better. But I think people are always surprised when they find out, you know, number one Sunday Times best-selling author who dropped, dropped English. English. But, but I think that, that's nothing to do with me. That, that's an indication of how shit the curriculum was when I was in mm. school. Um, you know, it was dry as tongues with no butter. It was dreadful. Sorry, at all. No, because I remember going to school and I think English for me was a really great opportunity to be able to have discuss queerness, whether it's present in books or sort of an undertone reading. It was a way to open up that discourse in the classroom, which I'm not sure if it was becoming just more of a thing as like we progress and it just sort of permeates society more and becomes just a wider part of like the discourse. But one thing I did want to ask, you did mention that um, it took a while to sort of find your gender identity and it was a bit later on. So when you were at uni, did you sort of use that to explore your gender identity more or was it a case of like, it took, did it take a while? Like what was that like? like it, it did and I think you know, to contextualise it, I went to college in 99 and graduated in 2002, where trans representation just was nothing. No. You know, so it's, it's funny actually, I remember there was a controversy when they decided to change the LGB society to the LGBT society, and I remember being part of that conversation, broadly, I was dating the chair of the LGBT <coughs> society, and he was really against he was really against having adding trans people to the mix because he was like, you know, I, I don't think being transgender is anything to do with sexuality. And at the time, I mean, I was basically just sleeping with him and you know, I, was, I wasn't particularly politically involved. And I was kind of like, hmm. And so there were, there was at that point, even in 2002, there were trans students at Bangor. And, and then obviously Nadia did Big Brother in 2005. Amazing, Iconic. amazing. And so throughout the early noughties, you know, trans representation slowly improved, but I didn't start to meet trans people until the late noughties. And that for me was actually more important than seeing trans people on TV. Because it's actually, it's, it's that seeing it for yourself, seeing with your own eyes that there are trans people living and thriving and that there is a future for you. And I think that's really, really important. And I haven't made the connection through film or television Whereas when I started to meet people like Isla Holden, Paris Lees, I was like, these women are living their lives. I do not doubt their womanhood. I do not question their womanhood. Why are you questioning your womanhood? And so for me, it was actually my real life interactions with trans people. So I was kind of, I was kind of old. I don't think I was like a geriatric transitioner. <laughs> I think that is the term for it because I was so old when I started my transition. That add that to your Instagram following. Geriatric transitioner, yeah. Drag name. You mentioned Nadia. Mm -hmm. um, on the Big Brother. Yeah. And she won. She did. Which I think in the current climate we're in, mm -hmm. and there's such a sort of toxic cultural debate going mm -hmm. on, I don't know personally, obviously I'm not a trans person, but I don't see how that could happen. Like now in this current 
Like, I think there's just such a vitriol. So I almost think it's crazy how she won almost 15, 20 years yeah. back, and how much has it progressed and developed, really? Well, there's a couple of things to draw about Nadia's Big Brother. The first one is that she was, when you, it's, it's funny, we've all, I think, as a culture, slightly rose-tinted Nadia's time. Mm. She was fabulous. The way she was treated on the show was rotten. Mm. And, you know, it's when you go back and watch, when anybody was evicted, Davina would sit there and gleefully expose, like, I've got a secret about Nadia, and she would basically out Nadia. And we remember in that house, Nadia did not talk about being trans. She was stealth. She didn't tell anyone she was trans. You know, and so it was very strange. There was almost this gotcha moment. And of course, we'd seen the same gotcha. It's the whole, like, we need to talk about the, um, there's something about Miriam, mm. which was the even more ghastly reality show that came before Nadia, where a group of straight men were tricked basically into dating. This, this is a big thing with like the whole sort of anti-trans debate is like the deceitfulness, the trickery. Yeah. Right? And it's gone back for like decades. Yeah, and then TV didn't help with that. And Nadia's journey in the Big Brother house didn't massively help. Obviously, once Nadia came out, she talked very extensively about her transition. And that was, that was a good thing. I think now, weirdly, and this is, there is a massive disconnect between the conversation that's happening in the media and real life people's perceptions of trans people. I think most people just don't care. Yeah. Like genuinely. I think you know, if you if you are truly gonna believe everything you read in a tabloid newspaper, like I don't think I can really help you with that. Like if you haven't got the critical thinking skills to think that like there are fewer than a million trans people in the UK. There are probably more big cats in zoos than there are, and I don't know if that's true, but you know, we're such a small community. You heard it here first. We've, we've just done a census, you know, that, that reveals actually there are very, very few sort of trans people living in the UK right now. So honestly, what threat could we possibly pose to the way of life of Britons in this country? And of course the newspapers have got to talk about us, because we can't talk about the actual threat to life in the UK which was Brexit, mm. which now has left us completely isolated. We're in economic straits, we're in a cost of living crisis. We're just beginning to feel the impacts on our food, on our imports and exports. You know, the newspapers which really championed Brexit, they can't put their hands up now and say, oh yeah, we want to open your sauce. Sauce, whoops. And so, you, you know, refugees, trans people, you know, who else can we demonize? Muslims, homeless people. Travellers, you know, there have always been scapegoats. Yeah, let's throw this red meat to the vultures to distract yeah. from this issue going on. Because the the newspapers have backed a Tory government for twelve years now, and the reason our country is in a state is because of our leaders. Mm. You know what? What we, there are no trans people in positions of power mm. at all. There are no trans CEOs. There are no trans politicians. You know, we we have no voice in this country and no power in this country. So what could we have possibly done mm. to affect anybody's life in the UK? The only person my transition has affected is me and my mum and my dad and my sister and my friends and no one else. No, because I think that's really well said as well because I think, like, I think also a lot of this issue comes from, not issue, I don't want, it's not the trans issue, the issue that other people yeah. have is that we are seeing an increased representation of trans people in the media so yeah. people are becoming more aware of it, it's more... It's, it's like integrating more onto their TV screens, into their living rooms. 
but the support system and framework to protect and support trans people hasn't been put into place. Again, that is the fault of our leaders. Yeah. The NHS, which is wonderful but flawed, you know, should have recognised a long time ago that with increased representation, more trans people felt safe to come out. There's, there's, there is no social contagion. It's not like people who see me on the telly and be like, oh yeah, that looks great, let's sign up. You know, it's just that... Me, me. So what it is, is people can see our lives mm. and, and they perceive that it's safe for them to follow down a similar path. You know, and, and, and it is, you know, and, and I believe, you know, it, things might look bleak, but, but actually no one can stop you from being yourself. And, you know, I have experienced nothing but contentment and joy since I came out. You know, that's how I know I'm trans, mm. because I've only gotten happier. You know, had, had I started down this path and felt more anxious and more depressed, I would have been like, well, maybe this wasn't, maybe this wasn't the right option for you. But actually, the longer I've existed as Juno, the sort of the happier and more, the word I like to use is content. You know, it's not always singing and dancing, but, it's like you know, peace. Yeah, a, a more peaceful version of myself. And I think, you know, the, my, the way that I transitioned isn't, going to be the right way for everyone, no two trans people are the same, but, you know, we, you're right, as, as a country we need an infrastructure, um, but, but also that a recognition that, so what, you know, just it, like I said, it, it's truly a personal choice, and that's why, you know, that's why trans rights are human rights, because it is about the right to exist on this planet in the way that you are most at peace. And you know, if, if we take away that right for trans people to exist, we take away religious freedoms, we take away gay and lesbian freedoms, we take away the freedom of women to work, you know. Where does it stop? Where does it stop? And then this is this is why I call for allyship and this is why I call for all LGBTQ people to to stand together for trans rights. Because if rights if we are the lowest hanging fruit, if our rights are rolled back, why would anybody stop there? Why would an authoritarian government stop with trans people? They would, of course, come for abortion rights. Of course, they would come for the right to wear a, to wear a niqab or a hijab. You know, these are, this is a matter of human autonomy about freedom. Thank you.